with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth and that it leads us to your son, who is the heir of all things, the creator of the world, and the redeemer of the church. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 47. We're going to be reading Isaiah chapter 47 and 48, and I realize that I have a little less time than I normally would have today because Kevin took such a long time reading that passage. It was a long passage. He did a very good job of it. Isaiah uh, 47, and, and while you're finding Isaiah 47, just give you uh, an introduction, maybe some context here. So we have Israel is, uh, has been living in disobedience And God has been sending them prophet after prophet. And one of the things that he has prophesied is that if they do not turn to the Lord, if they do not repent and put their faith again in God and follow him, uh, then they will be bound for exile, that they will be taken into exile by Babylon. But even as this, this prophecy of their exile is many years in advance prophesied, God is at the same time prophesying a return from exile. He's saying that Babylon, which would conquer them, would one day be conquered, and it would be conquered by a man named Cyrus, and that Cyrus would send the people out of Babylon back to their land, back to the land of Jerusalem. He would restore Jerusalem, which would be destroyed by Babylon. He would restore it. And so exile is prophesied for Jerusalem, and they're hearing these words at Isaiah, and some of them are not believing it. It's not going to be destroyed. But Babylon would destroy Jerusalem. He'll take her people into exile. And Babylon is going to hold God's people. And there they will suffer. They will suffer greatly. Babylon will be cruel, cruel, cruel masters to them. And God would redeem them. He will restore them through the hands of Cyrus. He'll topple Babylon and he will set the captives free. He's going to send them back to Jerusalem. Now, the people who first heard this message, again, they hadn't been put into exile yet. This is prophesied before exile. And you can imagine some of them, their hearts were already pulled to Babylon. As Babylon approaches to destroy them, their hearts are kind of already pulled to Babylon. Not that they want to go into exile, but maybe they're jealous of of Babylon. They fear Babylon, and maybe they think they should worship Babylon's gods and join Babylon in this idolatry, safer there than with the Lord. Now think about the people who are years later in exile. They're they're Israelites in exile in Babylon under the oppression of Babylon. And while they're there, their hearts are also in Babylon. They kind of are pulled to Babylon, this great city that the whole world is jealous of and follows the lead of Babylon. Their hearts are already pulled to Babylon. Another big problem, though, is that the people, after the words of emancipation, after Cyrus says, Go back to Jerusalem. Many of the people didn't go. Their hearts were already, not just their their bodies, but their hearts were already in Babylon. They wanted to be part of Babylon. Not just there, but also be part of Babylon. Not just in Babylon, but of Babylon. And then we also see, as we see the history of God's people after they're emancipated, after a good group of them go back to the land of Israel. Now they're in Jerusalem, and yet they took hearts, they took Babylonian hearts with them. 
Babylonian hearts, essentially, that did not love the Lord, that didn't trust the Lord, didn't fear the Lord, but wished they could be just like the Babylonians. And so this is the context. Babylon's, Babylon's going to fall. Cyrus is going to do it. And then God gives these two chapters through Isaiah. The first chapter, 47, is directed at Babylon, speaking to Babylon. And it's not very complimentary, by the way. It uses words that you wouldn't typically use in polite company. And then chapter 48 is actually addressed to Israel, God's people. So let's start in, in chapter 47. We're going to get this first point. Hopefully you can see this with me. Babylon the harlot or prostitute, mistress of the world and hater of the church. Let's read the first seven verses of chapter 47. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of the nations. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Thus far God's word. So here we see Babylon is pictured as as a woman who pretends to be dignified, a dignified woman of whom all should wish to be like, who all all should wish to be joined. She's, she's, She's presenting herself as living a respectable life, not to be ashamed of, a good life, a good life. She appears to present herself as a chaste young woman. There's nothing to be ashamed of. She's portrayed as delicate and and tender. This is not a hard life, being like me. This This is a good life. There's no hard work. It's dignified. This is what she presents herself to the world as, and even the way the world tends to think of her. That's the easy life. That's the dignified life. This is the good life. And yet, really, what is she? She's a harlot. She's a woman who sells her body. Verse 3, the The Lord says this, your disgrace shall be seen. Described as a person here, Babylon is, so that God's people would know why they're drawn to her and why they should not be drawn to her. She is actually not as she seems. Babylon, now you may have noticed this in in Kevin's reading, long reading, of uh, Revelation 17 and 18, these two chapters are incredibly parallel to those. What does John call call Rome? He calls her Babylon. He calls her the harlot, the prostitute. And the church was tempted in John's day, right after the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection, the church was tempted to be drawn to Rome, to abandon Christ and to embrace the Roman identity. But John also seems to use Rome and therefore Babylon to describe the kingdom of the world. The city that all the world is tempted to follow and be afraid of and lust after. The one that is exercising dominion over all the the world. the, The world that longs after and wants to follow and puts pressure on. 
the kingdom of Satan on this earth, you might say. And it takes different forms. It once was Assyria. And then it was Babylon, later Greece, then Rome, and on and on and on. An empire, kingdom, or movement even, that all or many nations of the world are, are given or at a given time are drawn to in rejection of God. Drawn in this one direction. You know, she's called the mistress of the world. All the nations are drawn to her as a mistress. She's not the legitimate ruler of the world. She's a mistress. And she's attempting to exercise power over all the world, over many kingdoms. But a mistress is not a partner for your benefit, not a partner by covenant, not a legitimate partner. She's using you while you are using her. While trying to convince you that she is for you, she's not for you. She promises pleasure, but at best offering temporary pleasure. She promises life, but ends up taking life from you. She's a free-loading mistress. She's not for your benefit. She's not for your joy. She's not committed to you, and she's not committed to anyone else. And all of these things, the Lord is saying through Isaiah, will be exposed by God when Babylon falls at Cyrus's hand. She's the mistress of the world. All the world is drawn to her, afraid of her while lusting after her, thinking this is the way to avoid pain and to get joy. She's the mistress of the world, not the lover of the world, a false lover. And she's the hater of the church. Did you see that? She is the hater of Zion. She hates Zion. Zion, the, the bride of the Lord, or Jerusalem. Zion is the Lord's bride, the people of God, not by works, not by prostitution, but by oath, by covenant. The mistress hates the legitimate bride. Zion, or the church, is promised to inherit not only the land of Israel, but the whole world. We saw that. Isaiah is already talking about that. The church of Zion will inherit one day the entire world as the bride of God. Precisely what Babylon is attempting to gain illegitimately. And he says the exile was God's idea. Do you see that? God's, God's idea for God's purposes. He says, verse 6, I was angry with my heritage. I profaned my heritage. I, uh, my, my people, my heritage, I gave them into your land. This was God's idea to discipline his people, actually for their ultimate good and benefit. But the kingdom of the world, which was Babylon at that time, took advantage of this and acted ruthlessly. They hated the Lord and they hated his bride. They showed no mercy, no concern for justice. Their, their desire for, for uh, Israel's exile was not the same as God's. It wasn't to purify and to uh, sanctify and to turn her eyes to the Lord. No, it was to destroy her. The punishment that they inflicted was not fitting. They, even, even on the aged, it says that they put incredible burdens. Remember, the Lord Jesus said, if, if the world... The kingdom of the world hated him, it would also hate his church. Do you notice here in verse 3, it says, I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. And then verse 4, he says, it's, it's like Isaiah breaks out of this prophecy and just gives a big 
burst of, of declaration of God's glory. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel, right? Verse 3 is God talking in first person. And then verse 4 is Isaiah or the church saying this. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name. He's putting vengeance and redemption put together. Now we have, we've heard of the kinsman redeemer. The goel is the, is the Hebrew word. I don't know Hebrew. But the kinsman redeemer. We've heard about this, that, that the, the, the nation of Israel was built in such a way that if they fell, even the families of Israel built in such a way that if they fell, if they suffered disgrace or disaster, there would be a man in the family that if he was able and willing, he could redeem it and as if it never happened and as if these people themselves had done it. The redeemer. There's another function of the redeemer we see in the law of Moses. The redeemer as the avenger of blood. That when there is a murder in the family, built into Israel's legal system of justice, was the idea of avenging of blood. It was a legitimate member of the family that if a murder was committed, his job was to avenge the blood of the family. The blood that was crying out from the ground of injustice. God would appoint a man in a family to be the avenger of the, of the family And so that man would chase down legally, legally the murderer and put him to justice, the avenger of the family. Now this is actually in the portion of God's word that talks about sanctuary cities where these people could run and run and they could find a sanctuary city and there they could plead, look, it was an accident and they would be safe. They would not be put to death. But what does the Lord say here in verse 3? I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. He's saying, you have no excuse. Your treatment of my bride was intentional. You mistreated her and you hated her. You have no excuse for the way you treated her. Yes, she is in exile. And yes, she's in a world where there's curse and sin and pain. Yes, she is there. And I put her there for her benefit. And you were terrible to her. And the Lord is saying, I will avenge the blood of my people. This is part of his job as the Redeemer. She is his bride by covenant. He is the actual ruler of all the world. And he will redeem her and he will avenge her blood. This takes us to our second point. The arrogant harlot will be crushed by those whom she used to tempt and intimidate. Let's see this in 8 to 11. Now hear this, you, lovers of, you lover of pleasures, who sit secret, securely and say in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many, many sorceries and the great power of your enchantment, enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Thus far God's word. And so you see that she... She intimidates and tempts the people of the world. She intimidates and and tempts. There is a a, a false appearance of love that is with a mistress or a harlot. 
But Babylon doesn't love the kingdoms of the world that she is trying to exercise power over. And nor do they actually love Babylon. Well, then how does she function as a mistress? Well, first we see that she tempts them to pleasure. We see this in verse 8. She tempts them to pleasure. We see this as well in the parallel passage in Revelation 18, verse 3. Kevin read for this. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. She tempts by promising pleasure. This is how she draws the nations in. She becomes the gravitational pull for how can we get pleasure? Well, we have to join her. We have to follow her. And she promises pleasure divorced from goodness. Joy divorced from holiness. Divorced from God's design. And the goal and, and the idea is this. There's more pleasure if you join with Babylon than if you belong to the Lord Jesus. This is why she's attractive. Not because the people of the world actually agree with her. But because they're convinced that this is the way to give them immediate pleasure. We see this in our world today. The world is drawn to the ways of the world right now. The, 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 the current Babylon. They're all agreeing with her. Not because they actually agree with what's going on. But they're just convinced your unbelieving neighbors, and you kind of are convinced that that's just the way to get more pleasure. Not because they are true believers. The, the things she is teaching and doing are right. No, they're just promising more immediate pleasure. But it's also through intimidation. Intimidation, we saw in Revelation, in Revelation 17 and 18. She's, she's read. Why is she read? She is or the, the beast covered in the blood of the saints. They're not following her, the, the peoples of the world, not because they love her, not because she loves them, but because she is threatening violence against them. Now, there might be some true believers in whatever Babylon is selling in the moment. But even as you see in our day, most people are not buying what Babylon is selling in that. Not really truly believing that what's happening, the, the current social movements of our day. They know that if they fight these things, there will probably be pain for them. So it's by intimidation. They know what they have to say. It's not that they truly believe it. And so she leads by seduction and by intimidation. Oh, church, let's compare that to Christ. And we will later, because seduction is not the same as really beauty and love. And intimidation is not the same as justice. And he leads with love for his bride and justice. You can see that Babylon, the harlot, is arrogant. And how is she arrogant? She's only thinking about self a couple of times she's going to say in this passage, I'm the only one who exists. There's no one else, let alone God. And so, dear friends, dear church, we, when we're not thinking about other people, we're only thinking about how things impact us, we're thinking as the harlot, as Babylon. She's got no thought of the future. I'll never fall, she says. 
I'll never fall. And she's thinking about things that can befall, terrible things that can befall a woman, right? Where she becomes a widow or she loses her children. And this is just an example. She's like, that'll never happen to me. It happens to other people, but it won't happen to me. And so she blinds people by getting them not to think about the consequences. He says here that she does these things because she does not take them to heart. She does not consider their end. She blinds you to the consequences of what disobedience to the Lord will do. Thinking only of immediate pleasure. Not thinking about how it could destroy even your life in this world. And certainly not thinking that you will stand before the Lord God, the legitimate ruler of all the earth. She forgets. And everybody who is tempted by her forgets that Babylon falls. Other empires have fallen. I won't. But you will. And if you are tempted by the current pressure of the world to turn away from the Lord, either by temptation to pleasure or by intimidation, you're fearing the pain that they might cause you. Oh, dear church, Babylon falls. It's foolish to think that this will not also fall. Babylon fell in a single day. Babylon falls in a single day to demonstrate the Lord's power Within a day, just thinking about the immediate historical context, within, all, within a day, all the citizens of Babylon were citizens of Persia. Immediately. Citizenship immediately changed one day in the twinkling of an eye, essentially. And that is proof that not only the current Babylon and that day would fall, but everyone would fall and would fall at the hands of Christ, the Savior and Redeemer and Avenger of the church. Third point is this. False religion hides what is plain to see. Let's see this in Isaiah 47, beginning in verse 12. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth to save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They can't deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each his own direction. There's no one to save you. We see that Babylon, even though being directly against the Lord God, against the God who created the world, doesn't stay perfectly secular. It's not an atheistic, it never really is, because the kinds of levels of deception, they require things like religious manipulation to blind people. Not only do they say, no, no, this is going to give you more pleasure, and this is going to relieve you of more pain, People walking around can see this doesn't actually seem to make sense. So they have to add the, no, it's the right thing to do. They add religious, um, the re- religious confusion and coercion. You see here, God is sort of taunting them. Go talk to your, uh, go ahead, keep talking to your gods. Go talk to the people, the, the, uh, the, the astrologers. Go ahead, see, see if they can help you. It kind of reminds me of when Elijah's taunting the, par- the, the, uh, the prophets on Mount Carmel, right? 
Go ahead, talk to Baal. I'm sure, look, he's probably on the toilet. Just talk a little bit louder. Maybe if you dance a little harder, maybe if you yell a little louder, maybe you cut yourselves, just keep trying. And this is what God is saying, try. Weary yourself. You can try all you want. You can be as loyal as you want, but it will not save you. Babylon is fallen. She always falls. Everybody who is the most loyal person to her will die and stand naked before God. And all of your enchantments, all of your religious talk, all of this extra learning, which is just trying to take your eyes off of what is actually true. We can think in our day, things that are clearly, plainly true, it's not true. All of that, all of that does is obscure what is plain to see. And dear friends, that is this. There is a creator. He is perfect and holy. You have broken his law. And if you were to stand before him by anything you have done, you would be condemned to hell. But he has sent a savior. You cannot save yourself. You are not born naturally a child of God. Your good works, no matter how good they are, no matter how loyal you've been to your religion, even the Christian religion, no matter how loyal you have not earned a place in God's kingdom, you will be destroyed. And this is what false religions do. They hide what is plain to see. Our fourth point is this, going into chapter 48. We now see God turning his attention. He's going to be talking directly to his bride. We realize, though, he was already talking to her anyways, right? He's talking to Babylon, but he's not really doing it for Babylon's benefit. He's talking to her in front of his kids so they see what the fate of Babylon will be and expose what's actually going on. So now we're going to see him talking to Zion. And we'll see this. uh, Our fourth point is this, the Lord's faithfulness to Zion, his sinful bride. Chapter 48, 1 to 11. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead is brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you just say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard. You have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Thus far God's word. 
we see that there are false members of Zion. Did you notice that? They're calling themselves by the name of the Lord. They're even calling themselves by the name of Zion or, or Israel. And here we see the truth that Paul says in Romans 9 verse 6, not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Even Israelites in the Old Testament are born with Babylonian hearts. He gave them prophecies to give them no excuse, and yet they still did these things. He calls them obstinate, hard-hearted. Being born into, into a believing family. Being born into a church family does not make you a lover of God. We're born with the same hearts as the Babylonians. We're born with the same hearts as our unbelieving neighbors who gladly and willingly follow whatever Babylon is in the moment. Verse 8, did you notice that? You were from before birth a rebel. Why is there then a promise to redeem them from Babylon if this is true, if they're just as bad? Because he had sworn an oath to them. He had given them a covenant. He sent them into Babylon to refine them. But we see this. If he just kept going with Babylon, with this exile, with this chastisement, in order to reveal who was pure, how many people would have been left? A big, fat zero. And so it says he defers. Did you notice that? He defers their punishment. He ends exile why? He defers their punishment. I'm not actually going to give you your full punishment. I'm going to wait until your Redeemer comes. And we'll see in, in, in chapter 53, he's going to give the Redeemer Zion's punishment. He is for Zion's good and for his glory. He restrains punishment. He defers it when her substitute would come and take it in her place. Our fifth point is this. The servant of the Lord assembles Zion with the gospel and with his spirit. The servant of the Lord assembles Zion with the gospel and with his spirit. Let's look at 12 to 19. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. I'm the, I'm the first and I'm the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call together, they stand forth. When I call them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret, and from, and from the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord who teaches you to profit who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you would have paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Your name, their name would not be cut off or destroyed from before me. Thus far God's word. We see here, again, now he starts talking about the servant of the Lord, Israel's coming substitute, Israel's coming redeemer. We, we see this. He says, who's the one who declares these things? The Lord loves him. And then, then the Redeemer starts talking, 
talking in his in the first person. Did you see this? Draw near to me, you hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. I have been there. And now the Lord has sent me and his spirit. Who is it that was there from the beginning? Who is it that was there from the beginning who made everything? He was there from the beginning, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I sent him. He was sent. The Lord Jesus is who is being talked about here. The Redeemer, the servant of the Lord, he is sent to be the substitute, the Redeemer of Israel. He says the Lord loves him. What happened at Jesus' baptism before John the Baptist? Heavens open up. The voice of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Father speaks. And what does the Father speak and say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He is the servant of the Lord who would redeem Israel. He's the one who leads with real love, covenant love, not seduction. He's the one who leads with real justice as opposed to intimidating people to do the wrong thing with violence. He judges violence. He is her substitute. How does he redeem her? Well, he lived the life that she should have lived. And remember, God says he's going to defer her judgment, defer her chastisement, defer that test The Lord Jesus, during his life, lived the perfect life. You could see that he was refined as silver. And when that happened to Israel, all you could see is more and more and more and more dross. More and more and more and more sin. But what was exposed when the Lord God put Jesus to the test? When he suffered, what was exposed? Only perfect holiness. And he did this on behalf of her, instead of her. And then it also says her judgment was deferred, not canceled, deferred, so that when her Redeemer came, that's when the Lord would bring her punishment. How does he build Zion? Did you notice this? Verse 14, how does he build? He assembles her. He says, assemble together. Assemble all of you. Did you know that the word church means assembly, the assembly of the Messiah, the people who have been assembled by him. And how does he assemble them? Well, with the word. We see this in verse 14 and verse 16 and verse 20 even in our, in our next piece to proclaim the good news. He assembles them with the good news. And those who believe are assembled to be true Zion, the actual bride as opposed to the harlot or the prostitute. But he says they're hard-hearted. They won't believe or hear his gospel. They won't respond. How does he do this? How does he speak and actually get a bride who believes his word? They have no hearts that love God. They have Babylonian hearts. So when the gospel is preached to them, how is it that they will respond? What does he say? He says he also comes with his spirit. He comes with his spirit. Dear friends, if you have heard the gospel of Christ's death for the church, resurrection from the dead, if you've heard it and believed it, you are part of the bride of Christ. 
you would not have believed it unless the Messiah gave you his spirit to respond to that word. This is how he assembles the church. Whenever the word of God, the word of the Lord Jesus is proclaimed, and those who hear it and who truly hear it, that's his church. That's his bride. His bride by covenant, drawing her out of Babylon, away from the harlot. This is how God builds the church through his servant, the Messiah. Our sixth and final point is this. Zion is called to go out of Babylon to enjoy peace, righteousness, and fruitfulness. See this in 20 to 22. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And we see that in all of Israel's history, the Old Testament church and the New Testament church, we see the same thing is true. We will be tempted and intimidated to join Babylon, believing that there will be more pleasure for us and less pain. But he says, come out. How did I treat the Israelites when they left Egypt? What did I do for them? They were afraid that I would leave them in the wilderness to to wither. What did I do? I fed them in the wilderness. Come out of Babylon. Turn away from Babylon. Do not be intimidated or tempted by Babylon. Do not join in with what she is doing. She will be destroyed. You don't have to fear leaving her or turning away from her. I will take care of you in the wilderness. This is what our temptation is to church. We see the lusts of the world right now, the things that they are tempting us with, all the pleasure they say can be ours if we turn away from the Lord, if we reject the Lord, our covenant husband, promising better pleasure. Dear friends, Babylon will be destroyed. She's already fallen. The last Babylon fell, and the one before that fell. This one will as well. The Lord Jesus is the only one who has a kingdom that will endure. Do not be intimidated. They can take your job. They can take your family. They can take your house. They can take your freedom. They can even take your life. But they can't take your soul. The Lord Jesus is the husband of the church. And he will keep her. And he will bring her to himself, into his kingdom. Because his relationship with her is one based on oaths, like a marriage, like a husband and a wife, not like a harlot. And he promises that there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who, in spite of the temptation of the world, in spite of the intimidation of the world, said, no, the Lord is our God. The Lord Jesus is Lord. He is our husband. And there's no greater, no greater joy than with him. For all those who held the faith in spite of intimidation and temptation, he promises them there will be a supper, a marriage supper. He will come to judge the living and the dead. 
and the harlot will get punished for all of her sins. And the bride will not be punished for her sins. Why? Because God says, I don't punish my, my bride's sins. No. But because the husband already took the punishment for the bride. The Lord Jesus died for the bride's sins the first time he came. And so we can look forward to his return with joy and anticipation. There will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. Everyone here who is listening to this has acted like a harlot. We have acted based on intimidation or fear of the world, and we have acted and joined in with the, even the sexual pleasure and the sinful pleasures the world has offered. We have, we have lived that way, but we have a Redeemer, and He has paid for our sins. And so we can look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, He instructs us to celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly, to remind us of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yes, the world is living like a harlot and and tells us, you should join us, it's so much better. But the Lord's Supper reminds us of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the coming judgment of the world, and the glorification of the bride to receive what He has done for her in her place. By the Lord's Supper, the, the Lord promises, reminds us of the promises that Jesus bought with His blood for His bride. I will return. I will be your husband. I will take care of you. I will redeem you and you will live with me forever and ever and ever. And so it is our privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward as we prepare to to receive the Lord's Supper. This is a covenant meal. This is meant to foreshadow the coming marriage feast of the Lamb where there will be many people seated around the table and only one human deserving to be there, the Lord Jesus. Everyone else is there because he died instead of them. And so we would invite all those who have repented of sin and who have trusted in the gospel, all those who are members of a church that preaches the gospel. We would invite you to join with us. This is being offered to you as God's visible promise for all who believe. And so if you are a member of a church that preaches the gospel, a member of this church, or another church that preaches the same gospel, we are offering this to you. Because we believe you should be confident that the Lord Jesus has died for your sins And will return not to judge you, but to redeem you as his bride. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would bless us, that you would take our eyes off of ourselves, and that you would place them on your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, when we are tempted to live as a prostitute or harlot, Lord, let us see what is the end of that. And instead that we would Love being the bride of Christ, our Redeemer, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Lord, I pray that as we celebrate Lord's Supper, you would use this to increase our faith in the Lord Jesus. And may you hold us until he comes and that we would be found waiting. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.